around for any length of time and you've spent time talking with me, this is one of my current obsessions is over belief, belief, and how belief drives our lives. If you've grown up in a Christian context, the word belief might take on a number of different meanings for you, but I will confess that much of my understanding growing up in in a Christian uh, culture, subculture, belief had to do simply with what I would read, what I would hear, and simply saying, yeah, I agree with that, or no, I don't agree with that. But as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that beliefs are much more than just information that we agree with. Beliefs are what truly drive everything about us. Beliefs determine our thoughts, our speech, our choices, our actions. Belief affects the quality of our relationships with others. What we believe influences how we do our job, how we parent our kids, how we love our spouse, how we respond to those in authority, how we treat those who are under our authority. Our beliefs influence virtually everything about us and every area of our lives. Today we are beginning a new series that's going to take us forward a few months and, and into the new year. A series we are entitling Foundations. Foundations. Each week, we are going to take a look at an essential core belief of our church. And we call this Foundations, as you might guess, because that these beliefs are what all of our other beliefs and practices are built upon. They have implications in every area of our lives. Implications for how we gather together. Implications for how we treat each other. Implications for how we see ourselves existing in this world. Implications for what it means to be God's people in the here and now. These beliefs speak to current issues that we are all facing current issues that our society is talking about, diversity, gender and sexuality, creation care, political engagement. These beliefs, these beliefs that we are going to look at inform how we think about, how we talk about, and how we engage with these issues. We are rooting this series in the first Part of the book of Genesis. And I, I said this uh, a few weeks back when we looked at um, spiritual beings and cosmic warfare and all, and all of that, that there's probably not a more important section in the scriptures than the first part of the book of Genesis. Our beliefs about God, humanity, and what God is doing in this world find their Genesis haha, here. <laughs> It was weak. Um, 
It's all I got. So we start here. We start here. And, and what we are going to do is we look at some of these beliefs. And as we see them here in the first part of Genesis, we are also going to move throughout the scripture. And we are going to let the progressive revelation of God begin to fill in and give these beliefs shape. The point of this series is not to uh, answer every single question or touch on every single nuance. We can have those conversations, and hopefully some of the things that we talk about here uh, on Sunday mornings will spark deeper conversations um, and and deeper reflection. But what we want to do in this series is we want to... to, uh, Explain from the scriptures what we believe. That's probably a good idea, right? To explain from the scriptures what we believe and how these truths influence other areas of our beliefs and practices. So we are going to go through a lot of scripture, and I encourage you. They're going to be up here on the screen. I encourage you, uh, as we go through this, script, uh, this series, to write these scriptures down, to go back during the week and look at them, to talk about them with other people. This morning, what I want to look at together with you is this essential truth, that there is one true God. And that God is one. There is one true God. And our God is one. And we are going to start at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And occasionally I'm going to ask for some feedback. So just if I ask you a question, shout out. Don't don't be shy. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In this one verse, there is a lot of stuff that we see here right off the bat. And I want to ask you, what are some of the truths in this verse? Just shout them out. God created. created. What else? The The beginning. What else? God created certain things, the heavens and the earth, everything. God was there before. We are introduced to God. A God who was there before the beginning. And a God who created everything. Those are huge Ideas and concepts right off the bat. Oftentimes, the things that we care about in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, how God created things, what, what God created, the, the, the uh, time frame within which God created things, all of those are important. All of those are worthwhile conversations. But I don't believe that's what the author of the book of Genesis, commonly believed to be Moses. I don't believe that that was Moses' main concern and his main message here in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. It's not what God created or how he created. The the existence of matter here is not Moses' primary concern. 
But what we see in the first two chapters of Genesis is a God who is assigning roles and functions, who's ordering chaos. And the reason that this is important and the reason that I believe that this is the purpose, the main thrust of what Moses was trying to communicate in these first two passages is that this is just like all the other creation myths and narratives of all the other cultures surrounding Israel, the people of God in that day when Moses was writing. When you read, you know, I won't get into all that stuff, but when you read the, the other myths and the other narratives and the common beliefs of how the world began and, and, and the, the different gods that brought creation into being, what you will see is that those myths and those narratives focus on gods who fixed destinies. God who fixed destinies. They ordered things. They assigned things. They gave people roles. They told different things that they created, what they were to do and how they were to function. And that is what we see God doing. Yahweh assigning roles, functions, fixing destinies saying, you get to rule over this. You have authority over this. This is how you are to work. This is what you are to display. We see from the beginning, Moses portraying Yahweh, the God of Israel, as being the one true God, the exclusive sovereign, in control over everything he created, saying, this is who you are. This is how you are to live. This is what your purpose is is. God is sovereign. There is one God above all other gods. That is the essential truth. That is the essential truth at the beginning of our scriptures. There is one God, and that God is sovereign over all creation. But let's move forward. Let's move forward and see how God begins to reveal more of himself to his people. And we go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Probably the most well-known passage of scripture in the Hebrew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Literally in the Hebrew it reads, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. This is one of the most important principles that God wanted to teach his people. I mean, just look at these words. Hear, teach, talk, bind, write. God will spend the entire Old Testament trying to get this truth into their heads. There is one God. 
There's not many gods that you should worship. There is one God that you should worship. This, is, this right here is about allegiance. As they were surrounded by other nations and other cultures and other religious systems, as they were tempted to worship other gods, your God is one. Your God is the one and only God. There is one God. These other gods aren't him. There is one God. You aren't him. There is one God. And you will worship him alone. But there's another truth in here about God that's implied. One that we see take shape as we move further on in Scripture. Just as a little side, it's always important when we read the Scriptures not to import everything that we know now into what the people who were reading these words knew back then. But what we see here and what we get a glimpse here is of something that we get a fuller picture of down the road. A truth that gets fleshed out more and more as we move into the New Testament. There is one God, and that God is one. What does that mean? What does it mean that there is one God, but that God is one? Let's look at Matthew chapter 3 as an illustration of this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So let me ask you again. What does this story reveal to us about the nature of God? What do we see here? Just shout it out. This isn't a trick question. (laughs) There's a son. What else do we see? Say again. There's a spirit. God is spirit. What else do we see? I'm here. Say. Yes, there's a father. Who else? And he loves his son. What we get here is a beautiful picture of who God is. We see God in a way that is not portrayed up to this point of Scripture in these terms. We see one God, and yet we see three equally divine persons. One true God, but a Father, a Son, and a Spirit. Jesus himself gives more shape to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in his ministry as he's teaching his disciples. He explains to them more about this relationship. 
And he does that by distinguishing their roles and their activities in the world. And we see a great picture of that in John chapter 17, in Jesus' prayer to his Father. Look at this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus here declares his Father to be the only true God. The only true God. Jesus also points out here that his father had given him authority to accomplish his father's will. And we also see here that the father is the one who sent the son. The apostle Paul fleshes this out even more in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What do Jesus' words and Paul's words tell us about God the Father? That the Father has planned all that will take place in creation. That the Father gets the ultimate praise and glory for giving his people every spiritual blessing. And that the Father sent the Son into the world to accomplish his plan. And the Father will honor the Son by uniting everything under His reign for all of eternity. We see that God the Father is the architect behind everything. That His plan involves everything. And that He sent His Son to accomplish that plan. That is God the Father. But look at what Jesus says about Himself Back in John 17, verses 4 and 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, what we see is that Jesus was sent to accomplish the work of his Father, the work his father had planned. Jesus anticipates the honor and the glory that his father will give him for accomplishing that work. And Jesus reveals here that that glory will be the same glory that he shared with his father 
before the world existed. This is what we read in John chapter 1 at the beginning when John says that Jesus, the word he calls Jesus, was with God, that Jesus was God, and that Jesus created everything. That's divine activity, isn't it? Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. Jesus created everything. Jesus accomplished the will of his Father. And then finally, Jesus shares about the Holy Spirit, God as Spirit. And we bounce back to John 16. And he's sharing this with his disciples. And he says this, Did I not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you? But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus tells us about God the Spirit is that the Spirit is sent by Jesus to continue the work of Jesus. Everything that Jesus had started Everything that Jesus had begun, everything that Jesus had begun to teach his disciples, the work that Jesus was doing in the world to draw people away from the ruler of this world and the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, Jesus says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, will continue this world work. And just like the Son glorifies the Father, by doing the work that the Father sent him to do, Jesus says the Spirit will glorify the Son by doing the work that Jesus has sent him into the world to do. We see this over and over again in the New Testament. The Spirit shines a light on the Son. The work of the Spirit reveals who Jesus Christ is. And the work of the Spirit empowers the people of God to continue doing the work that Jesus began. Jesus, again, sums up this relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Spirit in verse 15 there of John 16. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is just a brief overview of how we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit existing in this world. When we talk about the Trinity, one God, 
three distinct persons. That breaks our brain. We don't think in these terms. It's hard for us to comprehend. It's especially hard for our kids to comprehend these things. And I don't know if you've had conversations with your kids about this. Uh, I've attempted to have conversations with my kids. It usually happens when I'm exhausted and I've turned the light out and I hear, Dad, and then I know that we're getting ready to get into something. But when we've talked about the Holy Spirit, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about God, We use these different terms, and sometimes our kids are like, wait, what are you talking about? Who is this? What does this look like? One of the ways that has helped me, even personally, but I think is a clear way to communicate to our kids, it's not perfect, but it helps them understand this, is that when God is in heaven all the time, we call God Father. When God is in the world in human form, we call him Jesus. When God is in our hearts, working in us and through us, we call him spirit. Not three separate gods, but one God, three persons, different activities, different work, showing up in different ways in this world. Early on in the church, the Christian church, This understanding of God in three persons was embraced and and it was believed. Because we, just as we have seen, it's clear in Scripture. But it took some time to understand how God, one God, three divine persons, how they work together, how they relate together in this world. To me, so I want to invite you and the worship team to come back up. I've asked them to do a short little acapella song here. And so I'm going to let them do that. And then I'm going to come back and explain. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. could tell me what kind of music you just heard here? Say it again. Three-part harmony. We had different people singing different parts of one song, which is different than unison, where we are all singing on the same pitch. When we think about God together and God's activity, the way that 
the Father works, the way that the Son works, the way that the Holy Spirit works, the way that they relate together, they work in harmony. Three distinct persons working together, in relationship together, doing different things in this world that make up the whole. This is the pattern of divine activity that we see throughout the scriptures. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify each other. God is one. There is one God, and God is one. As I said, this concept of the Trinity is mysterious to us. We don't fully understand it. We have glimpses of it. And God has given us, in his grace, real-life representations, real-life examples to help us understand this truth about himself. And this is where I want to close this morning. Instead of this being some academic and intellectual concept, The nature of God, one God, three persons, knowing, loving, and glorifying one another. This truth has deep implications for our lives. It has deep implications for marriage. Marriage. The husband and wife, one flesh, yet two distinct people, relating to each other through different roles. A lot is made, and I think rightfully so, of Paul's words in Ephesians 5, particularly on headship and submission, and a lot of focus is given to that. But when you read that passage, the point is not primarily the the distinctness between husband and wife. That is secondary. Oneness is what is important. Oneness is the thrust. God instituted marriage. Why? To show us about himself. To show the world about who God is. Distinct, yet one. Different, yet unified. The church. God has given people in this room A diversity of gifts and personalities and perspectives that contribute, as we saw a few weeks ago, to building up the body of Christ in love, in maturity, so that we, as a community of people, can experience the fullness of what God desires for us. Those differences, the diversity represented in this room, the distinctness represented in this room push us forward into a greater unity. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4. We have one spirit that brings us together in unity. Yet it doesn't wipe out our distinctiveness. It doesn't wipe out our differences. It doesn't cease to make us, it doesn't make us, uh, 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 it doesn't flatten us. It brings us together in beautiful unity. We think about this even in intercultural relationships that we have with each other. 
We read over and over again that the kingdom of God is represented by every tribe, every tongue, every nation, diverse cultures and practices, language, skin tones, each reflecting part of who God is. People united under the rule of God through Jesus. And so we strive for that spiritual reality to become a relational reality. It's why we celebrate our uniqueness. We celebrate our giftedness. We celebrate our distinctiveness. We make space for diverse practices because we know that as we are doing this together, we are reflecting the unity of God himself. That's why everything that we do here is relational. Church is relational because church is not an organization. Church is not a building. Church is people. People relating to one another as God relates to himself. So when we think about this truth, this essential truth that we start this series off with, that there is one God and that God is one. You can see how that influences everything that we think about, everything that we do, our relationships, our mission as a church. We strive to be unified in our marriages. We strive to be unified in our churches. We strive to be unified in our relationships, to know, love, honor each other, work together, bringing the best out of each other, so that we can fully know God and that we can show God to each other and to the world. There is one God, and that God is one. So we come to our time this morning of communion. We do it in a spirit of unity because we look across this room and we see people that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, been brought into the family of God in different ways and in different experiences at different times in our lives. We each bring in all kinds of beautiful things. We also bring in a lot of cruddy things as well. Through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, death on the cross and resurrection, we are brought into the relationship that God has with himself, and we are given the unity of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, which I just mentioned, Paul doesn't tell us, go create unity. Paul encourages us, maintain the unity that you already have through the Spirit of God. And so, as we take our, our wafer, as we take our juice this morning, we do it together as individual people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but brought together as one through the bond of the spirit of unity. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming back again. Father, we honor you this morning for your plan to bring redemption and reconciliation to creation.
Jesus, we praise you for coming to this earth and humbling yourself. Even dying for us so that we could be redeemed. Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here this morning. And we thank you for the work that you are doing in us. We thank you for the work that you are doing through us. We pray that we would be a community of people who know God and show God in who we are, in what we say, in how we live. Amen.